All right, this is uh, lesson number 11 in our series uh, titled Overcoming Sinful Fear and Anxiety. It's been a longer journey than we originally planned on, but I pray it's been helpful. I've tried to be as thorough as I can without uh, being confusing, so no, try, trying to get as much information out there, but not so much that it's, uh, it becomes an issue that becomes clouded. Hopefully you have more, more clarity about these things than you did when we started. Uh, we want to today continue uh, this list of critical components in the process of change when it comes to overcoming uh, specifically worry and anxiety. So just a reminder of where we are, uh, we, we talked about what worry is. Worry is an inordinate concern regarding the future and things that keeps a person from fulfilling current biblical responsibilities. So it's, it's, it's something that distracts and prevents a person from doing the most important thing in the moment. And so we illustrated the need for uh, impassioned uh, concern and care that leads us to be faithful in those God-given responsibilities as well as dependent on the Lord for those things that are not our responsibility uh, with this visual that we covered at the very end of, of our Bible study last Sunday. We talked about this inner circle of responsibility, those things that God has called us to, to be or to become or to do, uh, the things that are on our plate, uh, those God-given responsibilities, uh, including things such as, in the bottom right-hand corner, our own thoughts, words, actions, responses to people and outcome of situations, efforts, weaknesses, and our own sin and its consequences. Then we have this outer circle of concern, which represents things that are uh, are of concern to us, but are, in a sense, beyond our reach. They are God's or another person's responsibility, and so we have to trust the Lord uh, with those things. And what happens in our lives is we either commit uh, a form of, of sin, a sinful unfaithfulness in our lives, when we try to minimize that, that plate of responsibility. So we, we don't, we don't, we're not responsible with the things that we're supposed to be responsible for, or we expand that inner circle of responsibility beyond what the Lord intends us to do. And by doing that, we have anxiety and worry. So we're, we're expanding that inner circle and trying to do God's or another person's job, which makes us overly responsible, which results in irresponsibility. So we, we get too many things going, we're distracted, we're, we're divided in our hearts and in our minds, and that's what leads us to, to worry. Uh, we also stated that worry is a sinful concern rooted in covetousness, worldliness, and unbelief. Ultimately, unbelief, because when we worry, we deny the character of God. We deny His righteousness. We deny his, that He is good, that He is faithful um, in, his, in His character. We deny that God is enough and that God has, has done enough, is doing enough, or will do enough for us in life. And so let me just... Uh, sort of illustrate that this way. Um, there are a range of, you might call them negative emotions. Uh, there might just be a, maybe a, a way to say this, but various negative emotions. One of them, the one we've been talking about the, for the last few weeks, is this issue of worry and anxiety, uh, where we're sort of thinking to ourselves, you know, what if, what if I don't get what I want or what I think that I need, or uh, what if I lose something that I th- think that I need or want, and so it's either we don't have it and we're anxious about getting it, or we already have something and we're anxious about losing it. 
So we have that. We have sinful anger as another response, which is I'm upset because I don't have what I want or think that I need, or I'm angry because someone threatens to take what I want away. And then we have this emotion of hopelessness, uh, depression and despair. We're thinking, I'll never get what I need. I'll never be, and just fill in the blank, things will never be any different. People don't understand, or God has abandoned me. And what we've tried to say is behind all of these emotional responses is this issue of discontent, all right? We're not content, therefore we have a lust for more. Uh, We start to have these thoughts, I don't deserve this, or I do deserve better, uh, if only I had, or I should be. And so that's really what's going on in our hearts and minds before we emote. (laughs) So it's before we emote with sinful anxiety or sinful anger, we're having those kind of thoughts Uh, to begin with, and then if you were to go down even deeper, you would find at the root of all of this is unbelief. God himself is not enough for me, and God is not doing enough for me. So, again, we start uh, which leads to discontent, which leads to these two emotions, which I think go go together. You'll see these together sometimes. And then really despair and depression is not something that people just arrive at overnight. That is the consequence of dealing with sinful anxiety and sinful anger and not seeing change as fast as you want it to change. So what sinks in over time is this hopelessness. So you add to anxiety and you add to anger this idea that God has left me out here all alone or people don't get it um, or nothing's going to change. And that's when you, you have that added to those other things. So my sort of train of thought when I'm counseling people is if they are to the point of being in a situation where they're despondent or they're struggling with depression, I don't just say, oh, well, you must have an unbelief problem. (laughs) It's like I basically say, so let's talk about anxiety and worry and fear and anger, and you'll find that it's 99.9, what does I say, the antibacteria kills 99.98%, right? You find those things there, and then you take them back to this issue of discontent. And I'm just telling you, it's there. It's there, and you start to unearth that. And then eventually, yeah, you, you want to get down to this issue of unbelief because there's something about God that they're, they either don't understand or that they're failing to apply, Okay. So that's why we said this weeks ago that you study the attributes of God. That's a great thing to study. I mean, not just like once in your life, but just ongoing study of who God is. Because when you study the nature and the character of God, what should happen is your view of God should go up. Your view of yourself should decline and go down, which means you have a right understanding of of who you are. Romans 12 says you're not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. So it, it puts you in your place. And when you're in your place and God is where he is, 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 whether you believe he is there or not, but when he's there and you see him for who he is and all of his glory, then discontent goes away. And when discontent goes away, then you don't struggle over and over and fall repeatedly into these other things. So just a way to sort of kind of pull all that together. Again, I'm, I'm kind of a visual person. So the, the, more, the more I can get things into a sort of a visual concept, uh, the better, because I remember it, and it's a lot easier to sometimes transfer these things, these, these truths to other people in counseling if you, can, if you can find a way to do that. So 
how do, you, how do we attack this issue? Uh, so far, we've looked at 16 critical components uh, in this change process, including six from last week, which we mainly distilled from Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 4. Um, and so we had this initial list of 10 things. Again, we're not going to rehearse all this, but this is, if, you're, if you're just joining us today, this is where we've been. All of these things are really just sort of unpacking the process of sanctification, you know, from recognizing sin in your life to understanding the, what suffering is to repenting of sin and what it means to transfer trust from yourself, your own self-reliance to entrusting yourself to the character and the promises of God and denying self. And so there's a lot of these are more general in nature. And then we're just getting, we're honing in on specifically this issue of worry. And so we added these things. You must rejoice daily over what Christ has done for you. You must think rightly about God. And again, these came out of that Philippians 4 passage. Uh, you must change the way that you pray. Uh, you must control your imagination. You must divide your concerns into different categories. Sort of categorically, the things that you can do something about and should do something about right now versus things that you can do something about, not necessarily right now, but you can do something about them later and should, and then there's just things that you, there's nothing you can do about them, right? They're just things that are, are outside completely of your control, and so you need to sort of know how to separate those things out, and then focusing your attention and energy on fulfilling today's responsibility. So those are, that's where we are. We want to keep it going. All right, so we have number 17. You must understand the relationship between risk, pr- prudence, and providence. Now, we know the importance of living one day at a time, not trying to spread today's grace over tomorrow's problems. Um, but we also said that it's okay to plan ahead. Uh, Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent... Lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. So you need to plan ahead. Uh, you, you just don't need to worry ahead. Okay? And there's a difference in those two. So a- as you plan, you have to trust the Lord with those results. Again, these are just proverbial principles. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The mind of, ma- of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So the question comes, how do all these things work together? Knowing that you need to plan, knowing that there are risks involved in life, and knowing that God is sovereign. So how do you put those things together? And this is where we are. We're in Ecclesiastes 11, where Solomon gives us some great insight when it comes to worry and how to deal with it while avoiding at the same time Panic, and or even on the on one side, fatalism, uh, and the temptation to self-trust. So, beginning in verse one, Ecclesiastes eleven, Solomon lays out what are essentially five proverbial, practical principles for overcoming worry. Verse one: Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven, or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening 
sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Now we see this issue of worry, it, 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 it's, it's clear there in verse 4 where it says, He who watches the wind will not sow and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. So Solomon basically paints a picture here. He paints the, paints the picture of, a, there's, it says there's a farmer, and this farmer wants to be sure of perfect weather before he plants and perfect weather before he harvests. And consequently, anxiety over every breeze and over every cloud immobilizes him since the circumstances might not be perfect. And so he decides to not even open the door and to go outside. Now, we understand uh, that farming uh, was risky business in Solomon's day. Uh, It still is risky business. Uh, If you doubt that, you just need to go and interview the poultry and the cotton and the pecan and the uh, peanut farmers of South Georgia, right, who just experienced this. Right? You remember that? Okay. That's Hurricane Michael, right? So we, we've seen this, right? Uh, we've seen, we've seen we, we, we understand this issue of, of risk. And in Solomon's day, um, untimely rain could cause your crops to mildew. Blasting winds, uh, eastern winds out of the Arabian desert could, could, could incinerate your crops. Locusts might devour your crops. Uh, raiders, Amalekite raiders might come in and steal your crops. The possibility of disasters if you were a farmer, were, were numerous. And this farmer, in verse 4, is very familiar with, with all of these, these possibilities. And so think about it this way. This, this farmer goes to bed with a list of those possible disasters on his mind at night. And he wakes up with that list in the morning. Okay? He is a worrier. Okay, so he's, this is a guy that when he goes to bed, he's thinking about those possibilities. And when he wakes up, those are the things that fill his mind. And he looks out the window in the morning. And if he notices the wind blowing at all, he concludes that he better not sow that day because he might lose some seed. And then at harvest time, he is equally paralyzed by another concern. He looks out, there's clouds off to the west. Who knows, there might be a storm brewing out over the Mediterranean Sea. And so he decides, better, better not harvest today. So, so here he is, so worried about losing his investment, so aware of his inability to know or to control the future, but so gripped with fear that he has led to inactivity, which is a huge problem, not just for him, but for us. So here's the thing, folks, you've got to understand. You will not, you are not going to know God's plan for daily events in advance. You are not going to know with specificity what God is going to do today. You do have confidence that God is doing certain things, right? I mean, we do know certain things that are going to unfold today because the Word of God is clear about those things. But when we're talking about the specific details of life, we don't know those things in advance. God is just simply not going to tell you those things. In fact, I think this is, this is one of the um, um, uh, sort of the, the, the results of a very sort of mystical, experiential, subjective view of decision-making in the will of God is that people believe that God is going to specifically give them direct guidance from day to day. 
And so they're waiting in their prayer time. They're waiting for the Lord to tell them specifically what to do in certain situations. I'm just telling you, God is not going to do that. God does not do that. Does God lead you providentially? Yes, He does lead you providentially. Is God God sovereign? Yes, He is sovereign. Does God give you direction about how to live your life today? He does give you lots of direction about how to live your life today, but God is not going to give you specific details about what is going to providentially unfold in your life today because providence is not something that you know ahead of time, right? Providence is something you recognize as you look back, right? You look over a situation and you're like, man, the Lord just did this and he just did this and I, I, that person walked and I haven't seen them in years. And I mean, my wife talk, was telling me this weekend about how she had sent someone a, a note and said, uh, hey, I just want you to know, I, pr- I prayed for you today. And that very next day, the person was told they had, they had uh, cancer. And just completely turned, just total massive shift in this person's life. Well, is that the Lord? Yes, that's the Lord. But I'm saying, my wife does not, did not know that that person was going to be diagnosed with cancer. Okay? She prayed for that person, and now that person can, in hindsight, look back and say, isn't God good? Right? That's God's providence, right? So the Lord led that believer to pray for me right before I got that news. That's a sovereign hand of God. But I'm just saying God is not going to tell us those things in advance. And we have a lot of frustrated Christians, I think, in the church because they want the Lord to do that, and God doesn't do that. And so they're sitting around waiting for that kind of guidance. And then they have possibly even some friends that claim that they have that kind of guidance, which makes it even more frustrating, right? Because now they're not in the in, they're in the out, right? So, well, the Lord doesn't lead me that way. And so they feel like second-class Christians because God doesn't do that. Saying God is not going to do that. And whatever it is that people are saying, God, when they say God does that for me, I would get in there and ask some good questions about that. Because what you'll find is a lot of times, again, it's a lot of subjectivity, and again, as someone said, it could just be indigestion, right? You ask, what did you have for dinner last night before you went to bed? How late did you eat your supper? Because there's some, they're, they're living by hunches and, and, and things like that, feelings that cannot be validated through the Word of God. Now, that being the case, though, God is not going to do that. He's not going to give you those specific details. Should that lock you into some sort of fatalistic view or overwhelm you with fear and anxiety? And Solomon says, absolutely not, Right? And yet, sometimes we want absolute confirmation of success or safety before we attempt anything. Sometimes we want absolute protection from all risk of failure. Or sometimes we try to avoid failure or calamity by waiting for perfect circumstances. But that's just not going to work in a fallen world. It's just not going to work. Now, we understand Solomon isn't encouraging reckless living. Uh, Solomon loves careful planning. Okay, you cannot get around that if you know the Proverbs. He loves careful planning, but what he is rebuking here is being paralyzed by fearful, imagined, hypothetical disasters. So we don't want to sit around like this farmer waiting for absolutely perfect circumstances. After all, we live outside the garden, but this side of heaven, which means that the circumstances are never going to be perfect, that even if they were perfect, we're not perfect, that we're in those circumstances. So what do we do? How do we avoid being paralyzed by worry? Well, having sort of outlined this problem in verse 4, the surrounding verses give us the principles we need to overcome worry. And so Solomon gives us these principles really in a business setting. Um, actually, I, I, would, I would suggest that because 
Solomon is talking about a business endeavor in which you take risks and, and hope for a return, that what Solomon is referring to in these first couple of verses is merchant trade, merchant enterprise. The sending of one's produce out to sea and then waiting for the ships to return with fine goods from foreign lands, a venture that we know from 1 Kings chapter 10 that Solomon himself engaged in and was very familiar with. And so he says, send your food, your goods, uh, you, you could think of it as just a livelihood, your provision, your produce over the face of the water or over, I would say, over the ocean in a boat. And after many days, you will have a profitable return. And in verse 2, he says that because of the dangers of shipwreck, pirates, storms, it's better not to put all of your eggs in one basket. So if two, two of your ships sink in a storm, then five or six of them will probably make it. And so you give your distribution to seven or eight. That is to say, send your provision out to seven or eight different buyers. Don't send 100% of your goods to one vendor via one ship. All right? So think about the wisdom that Solomon is giving us here. It's, 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 it's a very different attitude than that described for us in verse 4 with the farmer who refused to sow his seed because of his fear of losing one kernel. Right? Who refused to take a risk even though risk is inevitable in a Genesis 3 world. And as a result had no return. So this brings us to our first principle. Principle number one, risk is inevitable, so be willing to take a reasoned risk. Risk is inevitable, so be willing to take a reasoned risk. Again, God's sovereignty is assumed when we get to Ecclesiastes 11 because of all that Solomon has already said up up to this point in the book about that. But again, we don't know most of what there is to know about God's sovereign plan. So Ecclesiastes has, has been hammering. We, again, we didn't, we're not walking through this book chapter at a time. We're kind of just parachuting in. But I'm saying up to this point in the book, Solomon has been hammering this issue of the sovereignty of God, but he's also been making it clear that we don't know the details of all that stuff. So how can we then make decisions, whether they are in a business context or any, any situation in life? And Solomon looks at this. And he says, risk risk is inevitable under the sun. We live in a a world full of risks. Shopping is a risk. Dating is a risk. Walking is a risk. Working is a risk. Eating is a risk. Leaving your home is a risk. Staying at home is a risk. Right? (laughs) We live in a risky world. So you're, you're... you're going to have to be willing under the sovereignty of God and while trusting in the Lord to take a reasoned risk. Not a reckless risk, but a reasoned risk. The worrier is, is paralyzed by the risk and the uncertainty of the future. Solomon says the wise man who trusts God knows that risk is a part of life and takes carefully evaluated steps of faith rather than being dominated by fear. So there's going to be a risk, but sometimes you're going to have to trust the Lord and go for it, right? You're not going to be able to eliminate all of the risk that's involved. 
brings us to the second one. Principle number two, as a general rule, effort produces return. As a general rule, effort produces return. Right, so this is again. All, you go to think about all the proverbs that speak about effort and diligence and work and all that, and the and the warnings against sitting on your hands and laziness and all those things. So Solomon says, "Stop worrying, and send out your ships." All right, stop worrying, send out your ships. Usually, they will come back with a profit. Not always; they don't always come back with a profit, but usually they do come back with a prophet, a prophet because Scripture ties these things together, right? That this issue of return and its, and its, and its uh, inseparable connection to, to work and to effort and diligence. But nothing ventured is nothing gained. So be sensible with your resources, but put it out there where it's needed. And so it's just this, just, again, general principle, effort produces return. Principle number three, plan for things to go wrong. Plan for things to go wrong. All right, Solomon would ask you, are you worrying that things will go wrong? Are you worrying that things things will go wrong? He says, stop worrying and just assume that things may not go the way that you want them to go. Just assume that that's the case. Things may not go the way that you want them to go, but don't be anxious. Send out your goods because you'll get nothing in return if you don't try. But when you do, prepare for things to go wrong. Again, this has nothing to do with Murphy's Law. This has everything to do with Adam's lawlessness. Right? This is Adam's transgression. Okay, that is why that is the dynamic that we're living in. Right? It's not just some Murphy's Law and some general principle, the cluster theory, or all these things they have out there. I mean, they, they, people try to find names because it does seem that way sometimes. But we are living in this world where we're being pulled between these things and trying to, have, to balance prudence and providence and risk and all that. We're in that situation because we're living in a sin-cursed world. Okay? It's a Genesis 3 world. So send it on seven different boats, not just one, which Solomon encourages in verse 2, diversifying as a way to protect against calamity. And then in verse 6, he virtually he says virtually the same thing. Notice, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know. You ought to, you ought to just underline that. Do not know. You do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. In other words, you don't know which one will succeed or if both will succeed and so diversify. Again, we understand this principle, even when it comes to things like our, our files and records, right? It's, it's, we understand that it's probably not a wise thing to store all of your information and data in one place, right? It's, it's, it's good to to plan for things to go wrong. It's good, and you should back up your information in those types of things. Of course, back in chapter 10, Solomon has already reminded us of the limitations of that kind of thinking. So he talks about in chapter 10 this issue of wisdom, but what he tells us in chapter 10 is that wisdom is valuable, but wisdom is not invincible. So there, there are principles of wisdom, and we can get those from books like Ecclesiastes, there's wisdom psalms, there's obviously the book of Proverbs. You can live your life and should live your life based on those wisdom principles, but, but those things are not this like guarantee. 
Because what Solomon's concerned about in Ecclesiastes, one of his concerns is that we take the principles of Proverbs and we try to use the principles of Proverbs to back God into a corner. Hello? Hello? Are you with me? Are you with me? Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I've seen people that, that they're, they're mad because of the way that their kids are growing up. And they go up and they say, but the Lord promised this or that. I'm like, no, no, no. Where was that verse? I'm sorry. Oh, it's in Proverbs. Oh, Proverbs. <laughs> right? Wisdom is valuable, but it's not invincible. Those principles are not there for you to paint God into a corner and to manipulate God to get what you want. You, you back God into a corner and you try to use his proverbial principles to get what you want, we call that idolatry, right? You're turning God into something that God does not declare himself to be because to God, God declares himself to be sovereign, right? He does what he pleases. Now, I'm not saying God violates his word. What I'm saying is you're, you're overstepping your bounds in the way that you're interpreting scripture about those proverbial principles, so wisdom is valuable, but it's not invincible. In fact, remember, remember Job. Job was a wise man. Job was a godly man. Job, Job was a devout man. Interestingly, Job was the kind of man who diversified when it came to his investments. He had sheep, camel, oxen, donkeys. If you read uh, the first couple chapters of Job, you'll find out that he had those flocks in different herds, and they were pastured in different places. Right Now, of course, some of that was diversifying. Some of that was probably based on the needs of those particular herds and animals, but God took every one of them in one day. A testimony to the fact that no amount of wise planning or diversification can knock God off the throne of his sovereignty. So yes, there is wisdom in planning for problems and diversifying is one way to accomplish that, but sometimes God chooses to humble our most careful planning. Right? So we get all these principles, right? We're going to live this way. I'm going to make these decisions. Again, and in our, we, don't, we don't think of it this way, folks, but I'm just saying there's this, this trust thing, right? It's like we, we, we live this way, but we really want to lock it down. We don't like the risk, right? And so what we're trying to do is formulate and, and fashion our lives and put our lives together and control people in such a way that we can live by these principles and that nothing bad's going to happen, right? There's no calamity that's going to come. And I'm just saying, I'm saying what Solomon reminds us of in this passage is that God is invincible, not those principles. Sometimes, again, it's not, not to say that his word is not true. It's just we've got to be careful how we take the word of God and, and our application of that. And we have to know, for instance, in books like Proverbs, when we interpret those types, that type of literature, that's, that we, there's, a, there's a specific way to do that, right? And there's, there's, a, there's a specific way to use those things in the Christian life. But people want that. They want that security. So it is good to plan. Solomon says essentially that a plan that assumes that everything will go right is a great plan for heaven. (laughs) But it might not be suitable for this world. So risk, risk is inevitable. But he says don't let that drive you to worry or to fear. And that is true when it comes to who you're going to marry what, what to do about your kid's education, what job to accept, anything in the Christian life. Don't be paralyzed by worry. Evaluate wisely, but move forward and trust the Lord. Remember that effort usually brings reward. Send out the ships. 
See what God does, but as you do so, assume that things may go wrong and plan with that in mind. So it's just keeping all these things together, right? Not not just grabbing one of these principles, but seeing them sort of as, as a package and how they relate. So God's sovereignty shouldn't lead us to a fatalistic view, and the uncertainties of life shouldn't lead us to a worry-filled paralysis. What they should lead us to is a high level of God-trusting, God-dependent evaluation and activity. Under the sovereignty of God, things get done when you do them. And so we need to learn to be wise, but also learn to be decisive when opportunities come. That brings us to the fourth principle. Accept that there are some things that you can't change. Accept that there are some things you can't change. Notice verse 3. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. This, 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 this verse, it's, 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 um, it's not, kind of carries this idea of inevitability. inevitability. Uh, when the clouds are full to bursting, it doesn't matter if you want dry weather. Right? When the tree falls down, it doesn't matter if you want it to stay standing or consult you on which direction it's going to fall. Some things just happen, and you can't do anything about it. And understanding that helps us with paralyzing anxiety. Because worry is energy. Worry is effort, whether it's physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, but it's effort wasted on things that you can't change. So we have to learn to trust God with what we cannot change. And the farmer in verse 4 needs this wisdom as he frets about the weather. Accepting that God is in control and deliberately trusting in His goodness and wisdom for the things that you can't change is one of the most worry-relieving things you could ever do in life. Derek Kidner in his commentary on this says, We are are thinking of maybes or might-have-beens, but our business is to grapple with what actually is and what lies within reach. So again, it's just another way of going back to what we've talked about, that, that, that the distraction and the divided heart that we have things today. Jesus says you have, there's enough, today has enough worries of its own. And then when you start thinking about those risks and the, the, the what-ifs, what might happen, then you get divided in your attention and then you don't do either well, right? You're not managing what the what is very well, and, and honestly, you're, you're not dealing with today's God-given responsibilities very well either. So just another thing we need, we need to understand. Accept that there are some things that you cannot change. And then number five, you won't always understand what God is doing. You just need to know that. Again, verse 5, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. And again, this isn't the first time Solomon has reminded us of this truth. So it has to be important. And Solomon uses two examples to drive home this point that you, that, you, that you won't always understand what God is doing. And the first example he gives is the wind. All right, where, where does the wind come from? Where, where is it going? All right, not, not even the most highly trained modern-day meteorologist, which we have one right here in our midst, right? can fully understand the wind and weather patterns, right? They know a lot. They know a lot more than I do, but I'm just saying, how often do you put full confidence in a 14-day forecast? <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, all right, give me the three-day. What's, what's going on today in the three-day, but then as it gets five-day, seven-day, 14-day, you know, and then sometimes you can even see a monthly, right? You can even say, what's, what's the general 
what's going on in the month of November, right, in Atlanta. And you can see those things. We can track the history of that. You ever seen one of these before? This thing over here? You know what that is, right? The cone of uncertainty. That's good. <laughs> the cone. We, we, they call that, I think they call that the forecast cone. I mean, that's what I call it anyway. I like that, though. The form, That's a good one. The cone. Is that what it's called? Yeah, so they track all these things over time, and then they kind of come up with a, a sort of outside, like if there's a, you know, they, they don't, they broaden it out. Why do they broaden it out? Yeah, because we don't know, right? I mean, we do our best, but only God knows for sure, right? And so just, I mean, it, I'm saying, it, you talk about practical wisdom. I mean, think about when this was written, and you think about where we are today, right? Have we learned, I mean, right? I mean, think about all the knowledge that we have that they didn't have, and yet we can, can we not identify with this? Right? It's like the wind. Right? It's like the wind. You can't, I mean, you're only going to know so much. And, these, and, and when this stuff happens, right, I mean, as it gets closer, but still, I mean, we, we've seen some of you have family. I know, though, Eric, is Eric in here? Eric, okay. His, his mom was in uh, Tampa. She was, I forget the name of it, the one that came up and just all of a sudden it went right. Yeah, it was like, didn't know that was coming, right? And all these people were caught off guard, right? We don't, we don't understand these things. We're, we're just got to be comfortable with that, folks. Second example he gives, the development of human life. Yes, we know a lot about genetics and biology and human anatomy, but, but can anyone exhaustively explain the, form, the, the full formation of a human being in its mother's womb? We may understand more than we ever have about the wind or the growth of the bones of an unborn baby, but there are still things about these subjects that are shrouded in mystery. And so it is with your life. That's Solomon's point. So it is with your life. There will be times that you might be able to connect the dots, but there will be many times more when you can't do that. You know that God is doing all things in your life as a Christian for His glory and for your eternal benefit and joy, but how that is going to work its way out in detail in your life day to day, that's a mystery. You just can't see it, right? You won't get it. You, you just won't understand it fully, but God does. Then in verse 6, he summarizes really the section and says this, Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening uh, sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. Again, what is his counsel? His, his counsel is take the risk. Do it and see what God will do. So go, you go back to the worrier. Right? You go back to the person who wants perfect conditions, who wants no risk, who wants an absolute guarantee that his efforts will succeed. And Solomon says, stop worrying, sow the seeds, God is sovereign, get the seed in the dirt, wisely diversify your efforts, stop worrying about what you can't change, and get busy with the things that are your responsibility. God's not going to bring a harvest without you putting the seed in the ground. Right? Just very, very basic principles. It's, it's so important for us. The seed may grow, the seed may not grow, but God is in control of that. So again, you can see this line between your responsibility and then, okay, this is my plate, right? I got to diversify, I got to be wise about this, but I got to get the seed in the ground. And when it comes time to harvest, I need to get out there and do the work, right? But I understand that things can change, right? Those farmers in South Georgia, right? They, they put the seed in the ground, right? They did what they needed to do, but then the fact that they went through that, that's, they didn't know that, and God didn't tell them that in advance. And so they're having to grapple with these very same things. So how does, how does the God-fearer deal with not knowing the future, the plan of God, what is going to happen one minute from now, 
and not being able to control the outcome. Obviously, by guarding his heart from becoming bitter and giving in to frustration and complaining, because some people just, when they realize that they can't control everything and that there is risk involved and that they don't know all the details of the plan, they get frustrated, they get angry about that. We certainly need to guard against that. But also by guarding his heart from becoming anxious and fearful and his life from becoming inactive in the areas where he has a burden of obligation and a God-given responsibility to strive and to work. Attempting to strike the delicate balance between prudence, risk, and providence. Maximizing every opportunity, being decisive, being responsible while trusting in the Lord with all of his heart. Okay? So I'm just saying this, this to me is helpful because people that, again, they're, worried, they're typically going into one side of the ditch or other that we said this, they're either overly, inordinately concerned or they're over here and they could say, it's sort of like, well, who cares? Care less, you know? And those are the people that, would, that might even take a verse out of context and say, well, God does what he wants. God's sovereign. As if God's going to work apart from the means that he's also sovereignly ordained, right? So should we pray? Should we pray? Okay. All right. Is prayer effective? Is it powerful? Yes, we're commanded to do it. Is God sovereign? Yes. But here's the thing. God sovereignly ordains the means, not just the end. He ordains the end, but he also ordains the means. The means is that God uses the prayer of his people to accomplish his purposes. And the person that falls on that one side of the ditch is basically saying, God's going to do what he's going to do, but do it somehow apart from my activity in it. And we don't want to be guilty of that. So dealing with worry and anxiety, to me, this is a principle that you have to help people to sort out sometimes, or you may need to sort this out in your own life. You know, are, are you holding these things in tension, or are you allowing possibly one of these things or two of these things to be an excuse to not grapple with the other leg of the stool, right? The third leg. Let me give you one more. We don't have a lot of time here, and I'm not going to elaborate much on this one, but I think it needs to be said. You must enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. Yes, fear God. Yes, be prudent. But you please hear me. Enjoy the gifts of God. Enjoy the gifts of God. That is also a part of Solomon's counsel. So look briefly at these just a couple of passages. Flip back to chapter 2, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24. He says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from what? The hand of God. It is from God's hand. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore... As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. Go then, eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with a woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he's given to you under the sun, for this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. 
Now, why do I think this needs to be a part of our discussion about worry and fear? Because so many people, due to their anxiety and due to their worry and due to their divided hearts and, and, and their divided attention and distractions and all of that, they are missing out on the simple joys of life. So many times, instead of enjoying God's good gifts, we, are relentless, we relentlessly imagine the bad things that may or may not happen in the future. And so because of that, we choose to not get on a plane to go visit family. We won't do things with our children. We won't show generosity. We won't step out and make a new friend. We won't try something different. We won't build anything. We won't serve. We won't love. We won't put ourselves in a place that is uncomfortable because our hearts are all tangled up in what we want. And what we want is we want assurances that if we do something that we're going to have a firm grasp on how this is going to turn out. And I'm saying we have a general idea of how this is going to turn out because Christ is going to be formed in us through it, right? I mean, we are going to grow in our conformity to Christ and all these kind of things, but specifically the outcome, not going to know that. And so we get so focused and so tangled up in our demands and our little kingdom that we miss out on these simple things. This is what this is this is just one of those griefs when you counsel people that struggle with anxiety and worry is that you just see them missing out on those things in their lives. You just think, I just wish they would just see the good gifts of God, right? Now, let me just simplify this for you, okay, just to kind of, there's more to it than this, but again, I'm just to give you a visual. All right, when God created man, he gave him four things, a place to live, food to eat, a job to do, a person to love. Okay, you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, that's what you're going to find, okay? Or you could call it a home, sustenance, work, and companionship, okay? Think about your week, okay? Does that pretty much describe most of what you did this week? I mean, think about all the things you do every day. Doesn't your day pretty much fall into one of those categories? I mean, it's like you're either doing something at home, right? Some of you guys, you had some things you had to do yesterday, right, at home, okay? You have people in your life and relationships. You have, I mean, do y'all, how many of you eat every day? How many of you eat more than once a day? I mean, you know, God gave Adam something to eat, and he said, eat that and don't eat that, right? He gave him a place to live, and he placed him in the garden. Then he gave him meaningful responsibility, right? He gave him meaningful meaningful responsibility, and, and you guys have that every day. I'm just saying, don't, you know, you get so sometimes just overwhelmed with everything. I'm saying, just simplify it for a minute, okay? This, this is what God has given to you. Okay, is a stewardship. These are gifts to be enjoyed, but never to be worshipped. This is our problem. I think about this. This is our problem, is that we have turned these things that God has given to us as gifts, we have worshipped those things. We exchange the glory of God for the glory of the creature, and that's where we go sideways, because in the middle of all this, and this was Solomon's conclusion at the end of the book, is that what? The conclusion is that we are to... Fear God and keep His commandments. Which is basically, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the same thing. Fear, fear of God, again, is not we're scared that God's going to terrorize and blast us. I'm saying the fear of the Lord means living in light of the attributes of God. right? Knowing who God is and living in light of that. And that was Adam's responsibility, to do that. To live in light of all of God's attributes and to follow God's commands. And when we are anxious, in one sense we are too attached to the gifts... 
but from another angle, we're really failing to truly enjoy the gifts for what they really are. And I'm saying, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Uh, this is one of those principles that I think is so important for us to understand, uh, is that, is that, is that we, we need to recognize these gifts as from God, know that the ability and the capacity to enjoy them comes from Him, but when we see the gifts for what they really are and we enjoy them for what they really are and we don't get idolatry, idolatrously attached to what those things are and we keep the fear of the Lord in our hearts at all times, worry and anxiety go down. And when we ne- neglect the fear of the Lord and our view of God goes down and our view of ourselves goes up, what happens with the gifts we begin to get focused on the gifts, and when they are providentially removed from our lives, because God does sometimes providentially take them away, what, what does God expose when, when he allows that to happen? That we were too attached, right? He, he, and, he ha, and he does that for our good. He shows us that through lots of circumstances of life. So we'll add those two, okay? Add those two to our list. We have two more. We have two more, and uh, we'll, cover those, we'll cover those next time.